0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Biting Talk with two chicks presented by me, William Sitwell, restaurant critic for The Telegraph. With two chicks, egg whites, you can rustle up effortless fluffy souffles, an egg-free omelet, or how about a dreamy gin sour? On this week's show, we wish Vivek Singh a happy 20th birthday. Well, not him, he's a little older than that, but it's his restaurant, his Westminster institution, The Cinnamon Club, that has now weathered two decades feeding, over time, the powerhouse of British democracy with upscale curries, not to mention his famous slow braised shoulders of lamb. We catch up also this week with chef and restaurateur Mike Robinson, who is unveiling a new staffing strategy that he argues copes with the labour shortage in his business and will make for happier teams. And we meet London nightclub boss Luca Maggiora, whose strategy for nightlife survival is to open an establishment that will entertain folk in daylight hours. You might catch me there safely this side of midnight for sure. Then it's off to the house of Heydari, where mixologist Farhad Heydari has a cocktail whose story starts in New York, comes to London and finishes down Farhad's throat. But first we meet the Indian restaurateur legend that is Vivek Singh. Well, it's 20 years since my next guest opened his first London restaurant, The Cinnamon Club in Westminster. I remember it well, but here to chew over the fat of <laughs> uh, those days and all these years gone by, I'm very, very happy to say that Vivek Singh joins me on Biting Talk.
1: Have you got a dog on your lap, Vivek? That's, that's right, William. I've got a dog on my lap while I've been waiting for your call. <laughs> what, what, tell, tell us about the dog first. What is well, his or her name? She's Coco. She's a cockapoo. Um, she's five. Very good. Very good.
0: And are you a very doggy man? I mean, have you always had dogs? I mean, cockapoos are they actually real dogs?
1: <laughs> they are. They are real dogs. They're not working dogs. They're more, <laughs> but they they they're you know they're the people dogs. They're, they're not dog dogs. <laughs> and is Coco allowed into the Cinnamon Club? Um, not in the Cinnamon Club. But she is allowed in Battersea, which is uh, our, the own, oh, no, no, Battersea and City, which are the two sort of dog-friendly outposts we have.
0: Oh, that's very good. Now, listen, 20 years, does it feel like two long decades um, ago since you converted that extraordinary building, the library in Westminster, and uh, put a curry house in there?
1: I like that. Put a curry house in a library, you know, controversial as, as it does sound. Um, No, actually it, you know, it does and it doesn't, you know, there are days when it feels like it's just gone, you know, gone in a jiffy. Uh, It's gone so quick. And, you know, you, when you've been, you've been in it at the cold face um, and, you know, it's, been the best part of my 20 years in this country has been at the Cinnamon club you know the first eight certainly it had all my attention until we opened Cinnamon kitchen in the city so yes there are times when it you know it feels like uh, times the years have just flown by and there are others when you know when you sit back and you think oh gosh how different is the world now <laughs> compared to 2001 when uh you know just fresh eye and pushy tailed we you know we just had these sort of fantastic ideas, fantastic, audacious, whatever you want to call it, crazy um, ideas. And you think, you know, you could just do anything you wanted. And in, in many ways, we did that.
0: One of the things that, that strikes me about the, the things you've said over the years, often, you know, when someone's 20 years into their career and they look back and they say, oh, yes, two decades ago, the, the British food scene was terrible, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, if the, the interviews I've read, read about you over the years you're actually quite flattering about the scene, the culinary scene that you came and worked in. You came from the from the hotel group, but you were you were very flattering about the, the state of dining in in London in the late '90s, about the speed in which you could get amazing ingredients, and uh, you know it's it's quite refreshing to hear that from someone rather than for someone to say, oh, you know, it wasn't until I turned up that, uh, that there was anything good to eat.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I completely get the, uh, you know, the temptation to say that and do that, but... The reality is that, if, depending on where you're coming from, and I, I, I strongly believe—I don't just say this in a flattering sense—I do believe that uh, everything that went on in the '60s and the '70s and the '80s and the '90s in the restaurant scene, the, particularly in the Indian restaurant scene, actually set set up the stage for a restaurant like the Cinema Club to open in in, in the year 2001. Um, had it not been for all these. Um, uh, Restauranters and restaurants and, and the general British affinity and the affection for Indian food, Um, you know, this would not have been possible. So, you know, it was all there. The makings were all there. The good produce was already there. The fantastic logistics. I mean, trust me when I say that I had been working in some of the finest places in India and and I, and the logistics was nothing like this. You really had to Beg, borrow, steal, request your supplier if you wanted something the next morning, whatever. Here it is. And when I walked in, when I first set up the restaurant, and I could place an order at one o'clock in the morning and arrive next morning at eight, and the produce had already been delivered at seven. I mean, <laughs> this was this was a dream come true. So you know, and I meant every bit I said about the the restaurant scene. Um, yeah, it, the stage was set. What would you
0: say are the big positive changes since those those early days? I mean, if you could get great ingredients then, what are the things that have made your life, COVID aside, easier, let's say, logistically uh, in that time?
1: The thing that I could see coming in uh, fresh from India and you know coming in into Britain just with full of ideas and very little else uh, very little else in terms of experience or whatever you know full of ambition but not not a lot else to actually you know um, uh, hang your hat on. Uh, when I when I look at that, I, I could uh, the opportunities that I could see was that here were people, people were people loved Indian food. Um, all it needed was a little bit of a tweaking, or you know, in terms of the presentation, or just you know, bringing in that sort of narrative of freshness, of seasonality, of ingredients, of good quality ingredients on the menu. Smaller menus, perhaps. I mean, these were these were not things that were um, were kind of considered. Uh, or being considered in the Indian restaurant scene at the time. So uh, being fresh-eyed, <laughs> I could see those opportunities and I you know, I could just do that. The other thing that I thought, you know, I certainly felt that uh, the other thing lacking at the time in the scene was probably a little bit of energy and a bit of ambition. And I think, uh, you know, courtesy of Iqbal Wahab, who had oodles of ambition, you know, and he, he drilled that, you know, we together as a team, we had tons of ambitions. It wasn't just about, you know, just trying to be a, another Indian restaurant or one that was loved by, you know, people or politicians or whatever. It was about trying to, you know, position yourself as, uh, the finest London restaurants or among the finest London restaurants, if not the finest. And I, I suspect that ambition was, was, uh, was something that set, um, the cinema club apart. I mean, I, I, Looking back at it, I think you know, uh, produce was a given, and uh, the produce was a boon, a, a blessing. But, but actually, the, it was always there. I don't know why people weren't utilizing it enough. So we, we, you know, we we had that advantage of doing that. And then going on, I mean, I think you know, looking back at the time, it set the scene for. Um, so, excuse me, because <laughs> see. <laughs> Uh, so you know, it it set the scene for so many Indian restaurants and the kind of menus and the shorter, smaller menus, fresh seasonal ingredients, and so on. And The kind of things that we have begun to you know uh, view as de rigueur, uh, the kind of you know expect basic expectations. It has definitely, definitely. Uh, yes.
0: And I suppose set also bar, it right. it's enabled the likes of Atul Kocha to succeed as well because you know there's there's a number of you now who. You know, have have positioned Indian food um, as a as a refined uh, cuisine, uh, not just you know the sort of Friday night curry. And I think that's an, an amazing achievement. And of course, you know you've done that now, and for twenty years you've got a menu to celebrate that. But also, of course, you've built your your cinnamon empire. Um, give us a little status update post covid or as we try and come out of the pandemic of the the health of your empire um have all of your restaurants remained well have they all have they all reopened ha, have you you haven't lost anybody you know on the wayside
1: we have, we have four restaurants. Uh, we have two cinnamon kitchens, one cinnamon bazaar in Covent Garden, and, and of course the flagship cinnamon club that celebrates its 20th year this year. Uh, you know, we've been very fortunate. We've managed to retain the people. We, you know, kind of, uh, the, uh, our teams have been excellent. We have, we've always had this, uh, uh, ethos of growing and growing our people and creating opportunities for them. So, you know, each and every single one of my head chefs has been with me 10, 12, 15 years, some, some even 19 and 20 years. Um, so, every single head chef of ours is homegrown. Every, you know, most of our managers have kind of grown from uh, the ranks. And, and so, um, that loyalty and that sort of team spirit that we have, we managed to <laughs> withstand COVID and more. And we're fortunately, you know, we just like everybody else, we have the same challenges the rest of the industry has in terms of attracting talent and attracting people. But um, we found it, we we were rather fortunate to be able to reopen all of our four restaurants. And you know, we've had to alter, like everybody else, we've had to, we've had to alter uh, our operating hours and days, and you know, just make things a little bit more um, tighter. But you know we we managed to keep everybody through this, and and that is as big an achievement as having survived twenty years. I'd say.
0: Now, while your menu has the likes of uh, mustard caviar and curry leaf, home cured Shetland salmon, and you've got and Anjou pigeon with pumpkin and peanuts, what does Vivek sing? And we see you obviously on shows like Saturday Kitchen. What are the dishes? What are your go-to dishes at home? You know, if we were to come come over on a Saturday night. I mean, I know that your, you know, your mother was an extraordinary cook. Uh, yeah. I read that she, she would cook up to four meals a day, which is just staggering. <laughs> staggering. Is yours a house that bears any reflection of that? Is there always something bubbling on the stove?
1: Uh, I wish, I wish. I and mean, then I wish it was like that seven days a week, but it isn't. But it, it does turn into that at least two days a week you know especially at the weekends or whenever and you know we're still an open house when it comes to guests and friends and all that so if you uh, happen to be at mine you know for a for a saturday afternoon evening dinner whatever it is um you know it's very likely there'll be Cooking you a big pot of, um, Hyderabadi style lamb biryani, uh, or my, you know, sort of my, my, my big roast of, uh, a lamb shoulder or whatever, or like a ran. Um, but I'll, I'll do that because, you know, partly because I like feeding people. I like, you know, having plenty to go around. But also because it it's, it takes me into a meditative state. I every time I cook a biryani, I go into a state of trance. I just you know go. In. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And, you know, and I I eagerly wait whenever anybody puts anything into their mouth. Uh, I, you know, I I'm kind of on them, <laughs> looking at them and looking for that you know that nod. Or that closing of the eye, or whatever. If that doesn't oh. come,
0: <laughs> wonderful. And do you do you have any um, implements or gadgets that you might normally see in a high end kitchen? Have you got a tandoor oven uh, in your garden? Do you you know what? Are there specific tools or utensils that that is in the is in the Vivek Singh domestic kitchen that w- might not be in the anyone else's humble kitchen?
1: Oh, uh, no, um, I, I don't believe in that. I mean, I, I, I do most of my cooking when I've got people uh, over either on the hob or on a barbecue. I don't have a tandoori oven in the kitchen and I never needed one because I've spent a, a good part of my life writing books and telling people how they can create a naan bread at home without a tandoori, uh, oven. <laughs> it's, it's the kind of capex that no one really needs if they, especially if they don't, don't necessarily cook with it a lot or you cook outdoors a lot uh so yeah the, the only thing that i suppose I, I i i have both at work and at uh at home you know uh, other than the usual is uh, is a brass mortar and pestle that i've had for 20 years in the restaurant and pretty much the same amount of time at home and uh, it's a really tiny one a small one no more than six inches uh, but I carry it everywhere I go, wherever I'm cooking, anywhere in the world, I like to carry my mortar and pestle. Yeah. And it's, and at you know, that tiny mortar and pestle, no, as I said, no more than six inches is probably. Fed uh, best part of two million people in the last twenty years. That is amazing.
0: The the statistic of the numbers of people that you, you have fed over the last two decades. It's amazing. Well, listen, um, it's wonderful to catch up with you, Vivek. Um, I uh, I'm gonna f- I'll have to find out your address so I can lurk near your house on a Saturday afternoon <laughs> and give you that sort of transformational meditative look in the eye and then see if I'm popular enough so that Coco will sit on my on my lap while I scoff that. Slow-braised lamb biryani. Um, it's really <laughs> lovely to speak to you, Vivek Singh.
1: Likewise, William.
0: Thanks for coming on the on the show. Thank you.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Now, my next guest is an Italian who was a banker. Then he went to the nightclubs. Then he embraced the wellness scene. And he's about to open a restaurant this September in London. So his career is moving in an exciting direction. I'm delighted to say that Luca Maggiura is joining me on Biting Talk. Hi Luca. Hi, thank you for having me. Your career is an interesting one. You curve around and go from one thing to the next. You, you change countries, you change careers. Uh, when you open your restaurant this September, and we're going to talk about it, Will you feel settled or are there other careers,
2: other ideas in the pipeline? (laughs) Good question. Um, I think for the time being, I'm going to be settled probably for the next year or year and a half. However, I'm always looking into bigger and better things. So hopefully I can build a big hospitality group out of Bardo and my nightclubs. And that's the future I would like to have in the next uh, five to 10 years.
0: Now, you're not leaving nightclubs, of course. Um, Your business will still uh, exist. You've been running nightclubs in London since 2009 when you first opened um, Lux. It's been a, a haven of all sorts of people and music. Just let's touch on the hospitality scene when it comes to nightclubs, first of all. Let me ask you the big question. Are you happy for people to have COVID passports? Do you think that's acceptable?
2: I think the most important thing for us as nightclub owner and operator is that we will never close again. And that's the most important thing. After 16 months, we've been closed and the government forgotten completely about us. So we felt completely alone. It's been... um, it's it's about surviving here so uh, we are extremely happy that we were able to reopen a couple of weeks ago and we welcome the vaccine passport as long as we we never close again so if this is the measure uh, for us to never close again then be it we will enforce it and we will tell all our clients and customers I'm sorry you cannot come in unless you're not vaccinated
0: You say that the government forgot about you. I mean, you were really ignored, I suppose. And do you think it's because there is a feeling in governmental administrations that nightclubs are a sort of unnecessary ephemera to cultural life? You don't need to stay up all night dancing or drinking. You can be like normal people, maybe go out for dinner and then go to bed. Why is it, do you think, that governments haven't shown a real interest? I mean, and because obviously nightclubs are a huge, you know, it's fun, apart from anything else, there's nothing wrong with that. They're a great, a big employment opportunity for many young people. What do you think, Luca? Why did the government just ignore you?
2: I think it's exactly what you said, spot on. I'm always getting quite amazed when 90% of the UK population agree with the government to keep the nightclub shut. That give you an idea of how 90% of the UK population really do not care about the surviving of the, na- the nightlife scene throughout the United Kingdom. And uh, I think they just don't think our industry is worth saving. And um, you know, we w- nightlife is part of uh, United Kingdom history and heritage and uh, the government has a very wrong idea of what nightclubs and nightlife is in 2020. I think they are still thinking nightclub is something uh, um, similar or what it was 10, 20, like years ago. And apart of that, they just, we are creatures like habits and we got used to in the past 16 months to just go to a restaurant and then go back home at one o'clock and they felt like... Nightlife is not really worth saving. If you want to know about numbers, imagine that only to run one of my nightclubs, only to do operational um, operational expenses, without even my rent, I'm, I'm looking at about ten to twelve thousand pounds a month. So one hundred and sixty thousand pounds in the past sixteen months is what I spent only to cover my expenses. Now I have a club. In West End Mayfair area of London, I have three of them, and the rent there is anything between seven to eight thousand pounds every week. So my expenses in the past sixteen months has been something like seven hundred and fifty thousand pounds for one of my nightclubs. Do you know how much the government gave me of grants in sixteen months? Exactly forty six thousand two hundred. So that's the help we got from the government. Out of seven hundred and fifty thousand pounds we had to pay out, they help us only with forty six thousand six hundred. That's why I'm telling you for us it's key to never close again. Because if we close again this winter, 75% of the UK nightclubs will never reopen again. They will not survive us in yeah. the lockdown.
0: Let me push you on this though. So if you were in a hot air balloon and you were trying to argue for your existence, you know there was a chef there let's say there was a plumber and you've got the nightclub guy. I mean, is it just about fun? Is it just about release? Is it just about socializing? Is it about dancing? I mean, <laughs> those are all good things. Just <laughs>
2: it's, it's about mental health. It's about supporting the young generation. We always, we all being young, it's completely unrealistic thinking that people can survive without night and nightclubs. That's how young people have fun. And we cannot deprive young people of such a, a big industry, which is the nightlife. And I know that anybody over 26, 30, think, think okay, I've been there already and it doesn't really matter to me if nightclub will close forever because I can go on with my life normally. But all the big young population between 18 to 26 years old, that's how they are having fun. And you could see during the lockdown because the close of nightclubs was not meaning that young people was not partying. There were still being illegal raids, illegal parties, illegal house parties, almost everywhere throughout the country and without any type of control. So it is essential. Nightlife will never die. That's how young people have fun. There is, uh, you like it or you don't like it, it doesn't really matter. That's what it is. That's what it will always be. Um, and it is essential that, it, that this industry survive and strive. And I, I really hope the next 12 months will be much better of the past years.
0: And how do you survive it yourself? Um, I, I believe you don't drink, certainly not when you're in the business. Wow. Um, I, I don't know how, I mean, people do survive if they do sit with their customers um, are you still staying up till 4 a.m., going from venue to venue, or have you grown up and have you devolved power to younger people so that you can actually go to bed?
2: Right. I'm, uh, I'm 40 years old now. Uh, and um, of course, I do not have the energy anymore. I used to have, when I started, I was 28, 29 years old. But... Uh, um, The nightlife industry, especially in the West End in London, it's about personal contact. So people do come because they want to see you. So it's kind of important that uh, I am there, especially on the weekend, to just welcome my clients and thank them to come and see me. Um, Of course, uh, I delegate quite much more at the moment than I used to do when I was younger. So I do not stay every night until 4 a.m., probably until 2am 2am to 2:15 then my wife called me and tell me where are you yeah i need you back home and i'm going back home yeah so, so do you have young children no i do not have young children yet no
0: no okay well yet. that's a godsend then no, <laughs> keep it that way because if you can get in at 2:15 3am and then you've got to do 7am uh, good luck to you. Now, listen, let's talk about uh, one Pall Mall in September yeah. opening. Yeah. Uh, it's Bardo. It's a high-end Italian restaurant. I mean, come on. Isn't, hasn't London got enough high-end Italian restaurants? What's Bardo got that the others haven't?
2: Okay, tell me which high-end Italian restaurant do you know? Really, really good ones. Italians, eh? okay. all Italians, all Italians,
0: only Italians. Okay, well, you know, listen, uh, there's uh, Locando Locatelli.
2: Okay. Uh, I like, line?
0: listen, um, Zianis, which is run by Portuguese, but I love that. Um, you tell me the others, go on.
2: Um, well, realistically, uh, <laughs> there are no as many as you think that, okay, London is the capital of Europe, is a metropolis, and only this September, I think, in the area between West End and Mayfair and St. James, they will open like 10 to 12 new restaurants. And it will always be like this, because that's how London is and it's always been. However, um, regarding myself, I, I, I built um, a very extensive network in the past 15 months, 15 years doing what I do. And I told myself during COVID, um, it's time for me to step up and to move on from uh, nightlife I, uh, Bardo is a very strong name for me because in a, even if it does not anything to do with the Italian language, Bardo um, and is an Italian restaurant however, Bardo means um, a state of consciousness and awareness between two lives, which is death and rebirth for me it was almost like the death of nightclubs during the COVID and the reverse into dining and restaurant and fine dining after COVID. That's why I found it extremely like this is my name and that's how I have to call it. It's a 1,000 square meter space, so 11,000 square feet. It's go- so it's quite big to be a restaurant, is going to have together an amazing cocktail bar for 40 or 50 people, a 150 fine dining Italian restaurant with a private dining room. And is going also to have a private member lounge for 70, 80 people all in one venue. What I noticed during COVID, uh, that it was already present before COVID is that People do not like to move anymore from restaurants to nightclubs. People like to stay where they actually are dining. So I told myself, I need to choose a place where I can offer to all the clientele different experiences only in one venue. And I found one mall um, and it's an amazing location It used to be mint leaf for 22 years. And uh, now it's going to be called Bardo St. James. And, It's actually amazing. What I want to bring back, uh, being myself Italian and being 99.9% of my staff from the executive chef, Graziano Bonacina, coming from Bulgaria uh, to my general manager, uh, Gianmarco, we are 99.9% Italian there. I want to bring really the Dolce Vita back in a venue in London. So I... Put myself out of what now the new trend is in terms of vibe dining, a new restaurant which is DJ inside the restaurant. I don't want that. I think it's done and redone. In Baro there will only be a six pieces live band uh, singing a really old cool songs from the 60s and the 70s to reef to try to bring the Dolce Vita back inside a venue. And the food is going to be amazing and you know and I know that the food and the service is the reason why people come back to a venue. Um, And I will make sure both the food and the service is put on to bring Bardo uh, one of the top uh, restaurants in 2021 in London.
0: Well, listen, it's fantastic to, to hear your ambition and all of your ideas <laughs> it's wonderful at the end of the you know these uh, crazy months to speak to people who are excited and are opening new venues and um, bringing new ideas because of course we the customer we are the people who benefit so i thank you for your hard work from death to rebirth there we go bardo uh luca maggiore it's fantastic to have you on biting talk and i wish you all the best
2: thank you so much and i hope to see you the opening Now, regular
0: listeners to Biting Talk and anyone actually who's conscious out there will know that in hospitality there are grave shortage problems. It's a, becoming a nightmare to get staff, whether you're the gavroche or a local calf. But there's one man who's taking decisive action and he's revealing his plans today. Now on Biting Talk, it's a big welcome to Mike Robinson, the great game chef and restaurateur, hotelier sort of, uh, pub owner, Michelin star owner tv star mike welcome to biting talk
3: william lovely to speak
0: again just tell me just give us give us a quick first update on your empire we see you on tv uh we know that you've got a share in a in a very smart pub pub in london Uh, and uh, so just give us a give us a little status update of the robinson empire
3: well we've got um the harwood arms in fulham which is our lovely pub in london which we're very proud of um, the Harwood is, is uh, having an amazing time sort of post-opening and uh, doing doing great stuff, um, better than ever. And my business partner in that of course is the great Brett Graham, who uh, of Ledbury fame. And uh, I know that I spoke to him just before this call and last night he was running the pass while the chef was on holiday. And uh, yeah, I think the food's better than ever. So, uh, and then I have uh, um, The Woodsman in Stratford-on-Avon Uh, where we specialize in, you know, in cooking over, over fire and flame and in very traditional ways with amazing wild ingredients. The elder in Bath, which is, uh, my sort of lovely or beautiful Georgian building. Um, and that, that's amazingly busy. And the new one, which is the forge in Chester, uh, which is, I'm so proud of. And and the team there are doing really well again, cooking over, over um, wood fires you know, roasting simple, beautiful meat, but cooking really, really sharply. So yeah, they're going well. I mean, they're going really well. The desire from the public to go out and eat is massive. Um, the, the, a few things have changed, which is what we're going to talk about.
0: There is a growing number of people in the United States and around the world who also know you from the, from the shows that you do uh, in the wild, fishing in the wild, cooking in the wild.
3: Yes, and, and I'm very blessed to do those, predominantly for an American audience, um, where basically we show how how we sort of sustainably manage wild deer and forage and, and harvest wild food, but in a really sustainable manner and um, purely from a food perspective. So it, everything I do really with the wild is about management for food and, and, and for the environment. So we're trying to keep a, a good balance. And in fact, that, that's a huge subject, which I'm dealing with at the moment which may be for another day, which is the, uh, the the monumental environmental knock-on effects of pandemic on the wild deer population in Britain, which is set to spiral out of control. Yeah,
0: And we, we in, in fact, the last time we spoke on this podcast was on that very subject. Now, listen, let's get to the nitty gritty. You are making a big decision this week uh, about your staff, which will affect your customers. Um, tell us about it. So the most important thing
3: we have in, in our restaurants is our staff. And to me you know i 've always felt that there's something there 's something wrong about an industry where you know where you, by, in trying to balance being open as much as you can and uh, and and looking after as many customers as you can, in other words, opening all the lunches, all the dinners you know by necessity people end up having this tradition of working these crazy long hours in restaurants, and it 's incredibly important to me that our staff have a life, you know, that I, I want them to see hospitality as a, an industry they'd like to be in for their careers, you know, and it's very, and the reason most people leave hospitality is they have families and they, they're, you know, when they get to their sort of 30s, they tend to get families and then they tend to think, well, I just can't, unless they're really pushing to be that great chef or whatever, you know, they, they or, or top, top end restaurant manager, you know, if you're working lunch and dinner five days a week, you, you're exhausted on your two days off. And you work these crazy hours and i just think it needs to change so we, we've we've been the, the central question we've been looking at with the staff shortages which by the way are very real um, you know we everywhere has trouble particularly with chefs front of house is hard but chefs are very hard um, a lot of people during the pandemic went back to their native countries and and uh, and haven't returned um, brexit there are issues involved with that obviously with immigration but um you know, what I want is to make sure that the, the talent pool we have, which is amazing, we've got brilliant people working for us, um, wish to stay with us. So I thought, well, let's look at this. So, and, and the biggest area you have to do, because we also have a responsibility to our owners and our investors and everyone to be profitable. You can't run hospitality at a loss. So uh, and margins, I'm sure people realize in our industry, if a restaurant makes a profit of you know 15% on the year on its turnover, it's doing incredibly well. And that was before the pandemic. Staff costs have gone up because there's more competition for the staff that are here. So I, I started thinking about this two or three months ago. And I know that this is something that the Gavroche has done and various other restaurants. We looked at all our services and we thought, well, how can we reduce the hours our staff work? And the main one we did was we looked at lunch times during the week, weekday lunch times. Now, the the traditional fare of the weekday lunch in in restaurants was generally business focused. And now that people are mainly working from home or at least three days a week are working from home, you just aren't getting that. And so I, I thought, well, let's do an experiment, certainly for the next few months, whereby we look at saying, do we need to do weekday lunches? You know, if we didn't do weekday lunches you know, it would mean that, you know, yes, we wouldn't be able to serve customers at the weekday lunches, but, you know, we can put more focus on quality and effort in the evenings. We can have longer evening services. We can look after people better because we're not stretching our staff between the two services. And more importantly than that, you know, we can make sure that the staff, they now, with this working in place, you know, we're reducing our hours now to getting our, our staff to trying to work, you know, uh, between 40 and 50 hours a week, rather than say 60 or 70, and uh, and I feel that's incredibly important. And if you're if you're a young chef in the industry, and you know you you you're, you're getting on, you're keen, you're driven, but you know you've done it for two or three years, and 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 suddenly you know you, your owner says, well look, I tell you what, now you don't have to come to work at eight o'clock in the morning, have two an hour off in the afternoon, and work till 11. You can now come to work at midday.
0: So, will your staff have to take pay cuts? How's that going to work? Because they're kind pay. They're paying, They're going to work less. They're fewer work hours. Fewer hours.
3: Or? They obviously get the. They, they obviously have um, their full share of all the all the gratuities that come in through the trunk system. Um, so the the main thing for them is hitting a balance. They need to. What they want to work. Most people want to work enough hours to have earn enough money to have a good standard of life but but when you have a situation like now where there there's just a staff shortage you're having to stretch your your the number of staff that you have across all these services and it's and it's and and they even though you know we pay our staff every hour they work of course and overtime but it means that and people are delighted for a short period of time to earn uh, money on overtime but there has to be a balance people want to have a, a work life balance so I want to guarantee people the sort of hours that they want to work, which is usually 48 or 50 or chefs might be 55. And then I want to um, make sure that they uh, then get get the time off that they have so they can enjoy it. And what we're trying to work towards is that most staff actually work a four day working week so they work four relatively long days and um you know and then have three days off
0: but they would they would take those three days off or would they need that to supplement their income because obviously no
3: no you know because we'll make sure they do the hours they want so they'll get all the hours they want um but they'll have enough time to have a work-life balance so we we want people to do really well financially to feel rewarded but also you know I did this for years back when I was a, a, a chef before I owned my own I'd work on average 70 hours a week 70 to 80 hours a week and literally you you did have no life you know you were working you go in at eight o'clock in the morning you go home at 12 31 o'clock at night you have a break in the middle
0: yeah I mean that yeah you say that means you know no life but then you know life is is that is the enjoyment of the job as well let's face it it's not just life is not just when you're not no, working. No,
3: but, 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 but things are changing. Um, people's desires and needs. A year and a half, of, a year off, basically, a year of, of of being able to spend time looking at different things. A lot of people have left the industry because they've had the time to figure out how to do other things and thought, actually, you know, I can, I can be creative. I can become a, a, you know, I can do online cooking. I can do, I can create deliveries networks. People are being entrepreneurial. And so we're trying to make it so that everyone, all, all the people who work with us have the best possible work-life balance. I mean, at the Harwood Arms, we are we are now we now don't open Monday through Thursday lunch times.
0: So, Mike, just for clarity, which restaurants are shutting for lunch all through the week within your group?
3: So, there's slight differences in them. The Harwood is open Monday th- is, is closing Monday through Thursday lunch, and all the other services will be open. Uh The Woodsman and the Elder and the Forge. Are, the Woodsman is going to ultimately be open um, evenings and Monday through Thursday lunch, same as the Harwood. Uh, at the moment, we're actually closed Monday, Tuesday uh, evenings at the Woodsman. So we're open Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night and Friday, Saturday, Sunday lunch. And uh, the Forge is open seven nights and two lunches. So there are slight changes, but the main thing is traditionally we were one of these places that was open every service, you know, lunch and dinner. And now we're trying to make sure that there's at least four of those lunch services a week where we're not so that we can make sure that staff get the holidays they're supposed to. Cause I think something people forget is that, you know, you staff a restaurant so that people can, so that you've got enough staff to, to service at the level that you do the requirements of the customers and make sure everything gets done properly. You've also got to staff up for holidays and people have to have their holidays. And, uh, this has always been a big issue with restaurants is that, you know, you've, you often have just enough staff and then people are on holiday. Now, there's always somebody on holiday. There has to be, you know, in, in a team of eight at any given time, at least one of them will be away on holiday. So, you know, you, we have to, this really helps us make sure that people are, when they are at work, they're absolutely operating at the top of their game they are sharp and they've had enough sleep and they've had enough to eat and they are you know they're they're enjoying their jobs and there's believe me if somebody wants to work extra hours there's always they can always work extra hours
0: okay okay well look mike let's thank you for that um well let's see how that pans out let's hope the customers aren't starving in uh, Stratford-on-Avon and in Bath I think there's plenty of other places you can get sandwiches you can cook for yourself and when businesses get back to normal perhaps you'll uh, you'll relook at the situation.
3: I will say that when not finish on it, it we've done this for a couple of weeks now and and it, we've noticed that um, you know we've noticed that customer satisfaction is higher people are um, people are happier because the staff are super sharp and the staff the atmosphere is so lovely the staff are so happy And it's just it's great, you know, and you you, you really have to you you are only as good as the the people you work with. And and it it is now if we want to if we want to get the restaurant industry booming again
0: in Britain, the number one thing we have to do is look after our staff. Okay, great message that Mike Robinson. Thank you so much. Thank you, William. Right, it's that time of the show when we alight at the House of Haydari where on the magic carpet of cocktails, sunning his bald pate, it's looking shiny, it's buffed it up, and he needs to chill it down with a drink. It's Farhad Heydari from the House of Heydari. Welcome, Farhad.
4: Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, William. Uh, I don't have the scalp powder out, so hence the uh, excessive shine. I apologise for that.
0: (laughs) It's what happens when you spend too much time on the golf course, but you need to cool yourself down after a long hole whatever it is you say, Uh, Exactly. I think you've got an idea for that.
4: Yes. Uh, Our cocktail today comes courtesy of a man by the name of Brian Silva. He's a Boston native who's been a mainstay in London's top bars for the past three decades, William. In 2012, he joined my pal and the noted restauranter Keith McNally for the opening of Balthazar London, and the drink is the Balthazar Summer Cooler. Here's how we do it. You ready? Yep. (laughs) We're going to take 35 milliliters of Aperol, 15 milliliters of Martini Rosetto, and then 15 milliliters of gin. Now, we're using a gin called Eight Lands from Spreeside in Scotland, uh, and the Glen Rinus Distillery. It marries, uh, the gin does, of course, 11 botanicals, including cowberries and sorrel from their state. Uh, I'm told it's absolutely delicious. Uh, I'll let you know in due course. Then... Then we add 25 milliliters of lemon juice and pour all that into our trusty ice shaker. And then we shake and strain it into a high ball glass filled with ice. And then, Mr. Setwell, we top it with soda water. Boom. And then, boom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's uh, what we call the Balthazar summer cooler a drink that also works, I'm told, with vodka, tequila, and rum. And that's your two minute Biting Talk <laughs> cocktail, William.
0: Thank you, thank you. I've, I've missed you. Every day that uh, we're not chatting, I miss you.
4: Uh, you're, you're, you're very kind. The feeling is excessively mutual.
0: Uh, uh, Farhad, can we guarantee, can we depend upon you for being exactly in this same spot very soon again?
4: Absolutely. I'll be sutured to my uh, to my uh, bar, as it
0: were. Okay, get some talc on that head of yours. All right, uh, Farhad Heydari, <laughs> thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you.
4: <laughs> All the best.
0: Thank you, Farhad. Well, that's it for this week's podcast. I'll be back soon with more Biting Talk with Two Chicks, effortless free-range eggs in a carton. Just think of all those dreamy cakes and desserts and drinks. My thanks to Producers Front Ear. I'm William Sitwell. Goodbye.